I understand we have problems, but I want to be I want to be an agent of change because I know that there is so much potential within this country where we can be. Hey, welcome to The Empire Show. This episode is going to be a little different, and uh, you'll understand why in just a moment. I don't normally go on a bit of a diatribe before interviewing our guests, but today um, I am going to do that because you all know The Empire Show is about building an empire, financial wealth, generational wealth, and taking that money and creating meaning out of it. Money and meaning is what we're all about. And... Um, a few weeks ago when I started talking about the COVID virus and how small businesses are suffering and how when you look at the states that are open for business, they're the ones that are leaning more Republican or conservative and the more Democratic states are, are still shut. And my theory was that because it's an election year and obviously the Democrats don't want the Republican to go uh, to get reelected, that maybe there's a little bit of finagling going on. And I also told you that I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat, I'm a free market capitalist, that's it. I solve problems in exchange for money and I take that money and I produce meaning out of it for myself, my family, and the three charities that I give to, Shriners, Toys for Tots, and Compassion International. And, um, but a few people got on my ass about, hey, you should leave politics alone, Bedros, and you should stick to teaching us to make more money. Well, let me tell you something. It's the politics that give us the environment to make money. My father was a member of the Communist Party. You guys know this, that I escaped uh, Communist Soviet Union when I was six years old. And my dad did not have the opportunity to make money. In fact, when he would steal material and make suits in the home so that he could have bribe money to uh, get us to escape the Soviet Union, the KGB came through because they suspected that he was working under the table and of course producing money above and beyond what the government was giving him. So understand that the political powers that be determine how we make our money, how much we can make our money, and of course how much of that goes to taxes. So I'm gonna shift gears one more time here and we're gonna talk about what's happening with George Floyd, racism, bigotry, good cops, bad cops, and um, how it affects your money. And I'm gonna tell you this real quick. I don't want you to think that Empire is all about making multi, multi-millions. I've got a good friend, he's Loatian. We've known each other for 25 years. Um, Chanta Iamsisanith is his name. And uh, this dude is a computer tech at a local fashion design high school or uh, college. And uh, we surf once a week together. He surfs four times a week. 90% of the time, I'm highly jealous of his lifestyle, but I also realize my purpose is to create wealth and to do a lot of good with it. But Chanta, make no mistake about it, while he lives in a small condo and has a job and he um, you know, doesn't have a lot of fancy possessions, the man has an empire. He's got two amazing kids. He sleeps well at night. He's got peace of mind. And everywhere we go, it doesn't matter where we're surfing along the Southern California coast, he'll find the kid who's not not doing well surfing and he'll start coaching him up on surfing just out of the blue. And I share this with you because an empire can simply mean just having some level of small financial freedom or having enough money to be able to help your church. Um, and so make no mistake about it, man, what happens 
in our streets right now when we see small businesses catching fire all over the United States. And now it's carried over to Toronto, Berlin, and London as of yesterday. This is another pandemic. Make no mistake about it. Racism is real. It exists. Um, I see what's happening out there, and there's a whole other side to this looting and rioting that we're going to talk about. And the person that we're going to talk to about this happens to be African American. What do you know? He's black. <laughs> um, and so I would like to uh, invite and welcome my friend Remy Adeleke. Yes, sir. Remy. Hey, what's up? Thank welcome. You yes. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, and you are the first. Um, interview that we've had in person, in yeah, studio, yeah, yeah. since the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And you've got this awesome book that you've written, Transformed. Thank you. A Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx yes, sir. to defy all odds. Yes, sir. Let me understand this. <laughs> Were you supposed to be a Nigerian prince? I, well, technically, I am. You are, right? <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. we've all gotten those emails from yeah, the, yeah. the night. Oh, I'm not that one. Okay, you're not that guy. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. So, uh, but man, you've, you've got an amazing story, literally riches to rags to riches. And, and as I learned about you, uh, and, and I think we have mutual friends, Ray yeah. Care yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a few oh. other SEALs. Um, as I learned about you, I'm like, holy smokes, man. Like you, you and I lived parallel lives yeah. where my dad was part of the 18% of society who was part of the Communist Party. Yeah. So I would have caviar, butter, and bread for breakfast with hot tea in Armenia, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, in the Soviet Union. And when we escaped and we came here, we lived on in Section 8 housing mm. and, um, and uh, food stamps, and we were going through dumpsters behind grocery stores to find food, and I would cry at the age of six, asking my mom, where's my morning caviar? Yeah. And so as I was learning about you and reading your book, I'm like, holy smoke, man. This <laughs> guy went from riches to rags to, to riches again. Yeah. And so I thought you would be, and you were very vocal about what's happening. Yep, I am. Right now with uh, this sure. whole situation of, uh, I don't know, racism, bigotry, mm -hmm. white privilege. So let's, let's start there. What's, yeah. what's, what's been going through your mind and emotions over the last week about the George Floyd murder. I mean, first and foremost, what happened to him was horrific. But at the same time, I was I was even more upset because it's been happening, right? There hasn't been change. We've talked about change with, you know, uh, with Trayvon Martin. We talk about uh, change with Eric Garner. We talk about Rodney change. King. The, the Rodney King, yeah. You yeah. know, um, and I, I'm, I'm mispronouncing. Abdulli, I can't pronounce his last name, but mm -hmm. uh, but um the Haitian in, in New York City when I was coming up, right? We, so we've always been talking about change for all, so many years and no change has come. So when this happened to George Floyd and then it happened the way it happened, it was, it was maddening. It mm. was maddening. And um, for me, you know, as an African-American and, and having the platform that I have as a SEAL, I was just like, you know, I know I have been speaking out about this, but I'm going to do it even more vociferously. Sure. Because a change absolutely has to come because as we were talking about off air, if a change doesn't come, what are we going to have left? Right. 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 So what, let me ask you this. What does that change look like? Oh, well, one, uh, policing. I mean, the, 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 for me, again, a lot of the answers I'm going to throw out is my, my opinion on it. Sure. Right? So my first, my, my first answer is screening. Police officers absolutely have to be screened in a different way. Like in order for me to, to, to go through 
SEAL training, I have to go through a, an extensive screening process, right? Sure. And if just to get into the program. And if I don't get through that screening process, I'm not gonna get into the program. And then I have to go through six months of screening in order to even qualify to get the rating of a SEAL. And then I gotta go through another four months of screening in order to go on a SEAL team. Now, obviously because of money and time and resources, a police officer can't go through all of that that screening, but there has to be a change in the screening and 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 and, and, and more of a background check and is into who are these guys, who were these guys, what are their associations? Because that plays into it. The mindset that because we could train, we could train, we could train, but you know, I heard somebody say earlier today, you know. The police, a lot of police officers, when they, when, when they find themselves in a situation with a with a white person, their training works, right? Like yep. the, that white person, for the most part, is not getting right. shot or killed unless they pose an absolute threat. But how come, when it's a black person, it's a different situation, right? Like how come their training doesn't kick in? To like how come this guy couldn't get his knee off of George Floyd's neck, right? Do you think he was in a fight or flight state? Uh, Man, again, I'm asking you to make an assumption here. You you, you weren't obviously in that. I think head. I think it was pride, personally. I think I think when you look at the video and you hear the voices of people saying, "Listen, he can't breathe. He's dying. You're killing him." And then that cop has his hands in his pocket, and he's staring, like, "What are you going to do?" I think a big part of it yeah. was pride. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let you dictate to me what to do because I'm right. Because I got this badge. I got this power. So I'm gonna stay right here, no matter what you say. And what are you gonna do? You know, I keep getting this message from so many people, and 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 the majority of them are, are you know, my Caucasian friends, and and they're saying, why didn't why didn't those black kids who why didn't they put down the camera and go do something? <laughs> Think about that question, right? You have a cop. Who has who is killing somebody? He has a gun on his side. You got three other cops that are participating, maybe directly or indirectly. Well, two two others we know directly, a, a, a third indirectly standing because he's just standing there watching. And they have guns. And these are other Af they're African Americans on the other end of that camera. What do you think would have happened if one of those young African American kids or men went to go charge one of the police officers? The body count would have went up, right? At least that's how I see it happening. So, would you have charged? I would have. Personally, I told, I would, I told I mean, my wife, I said, while well, everyone I was blaming the two other cops who were on his back, on George's back, and the one cop standing there. And again, I didn't know how that it was all African Americans behind the camera, but there had to be some white folk as well, some Hispanics, whatever. I imagine there was yeah. more people around. And I told my wife how how easy it would have been to just follow my moral code, yeah. tackle the cop yeah. just enough, not punch him, not fight him, yeah. tackle him to get him off, and then lay on the ground and let them handcuff me, but yeah. now he's off his neck. Yeah. And I honestly, uh, again, hey, I'm not black, so yeah. what do I know? But I honestly don't think that if anyone had tackled, so I believe everyone watching was just as responsible as the cops, in my opinion, but again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also, walk around in a very different color skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, I've been in situations, you know, where, case in point, you know, about a year, two years ago, I went to a Best Buy, right? I get out of my car, um, and right next to me is, is a white woman, you know, and she's, she's in her car, and, and we get out around the same time, and I guess she was leaving her kids and her teenage daughter in the car, right? And so she gets out, and then she starts walking, and then she catches 
she sees me, right? She, sure. she recognizes, okay, this is a black person. I don't know what's going on through her mind, but she sees me and then she looks at me and then she goes back to her daughter and she says, make sure you lock the door, right? Now, can someone argue, well, maybe she was just being safe and she forgot to tell her daughter to lock the door, sure. possibly. But when that has happened to an African-American so many times when you go into a department store and the security guard is watching, I mean, you read my book, so you know what happened at the mm -hmm. McDonald's. When you go into certain places and everybody's being suspicious. There's another story that I couldn't share in my book, but um, me and my friend, we went to Seau's, a restaurant in San Diego in Mission Valley. And, and um, right after we ordered, the waitress said to my, my boy, we were in SEAL training at the time. We're training to be Navy SEALs, right? <laughs> we're not hoodlums. Like we're dr regular clothes. And this girl says to us, you need, okay, here, she gives us a check. She doesn't say anything. She says, here's a check. And me and my buddy look at each other like, the check? We just ordered our food. <laughs> She's talking about the check. And then she said, well, there's been a string of people walking out and not paying the bill and and you know the manager put it on the waitresses you know if you feel like somebody may walk out you need to give them the check for oh that's straight up profiling right gotcha now so when you have instances like this and in, in so many instances and then you get in a situation with this you know this this white woman who i've served this country you know what i mean like i've done a lot and for this woman to look at me like i'm going to and it wasn't just what, she, it was the look that she gave me that I've seen yeah. so many times before. Yeah, 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 I get it. That, you know, and so I, bringing that back to, you know, the skin that we live in, I understand as a black person, if I was on the other end of the camera and I went to go charge, which I would have done, I would have probably ended up shot. I would have probably ended up on the ground. I would have for sure ended up on the ground. And in the case that I was able to save George Floyd's life, I would definitely have probably been arrested and charged with, you know, whatever I would have been charged with, sure. right? Because he survived. So it was like, why did you do that? The cops had it under control. Right, right. You know? He so, survived. Yeah. So there was, it's, I see what you mean. There was no winning that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. There's no winning that scenario. You know, again, uh, so I'm going to go back to your first point where yeah. you said, when I said, hey, why do you think the cop didn't get off? You said it was pride and you're 100% right, in my opinion, again. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you where this comes from. Um, obviously, Fit Body Bootcamp, we're a franchise, and like any big organization, uh, franchisors, we band together under the IFA umbrella, International Franchise Association, and we have a lobbyist. Yeah, yeah. He's an attorney, and he goes to the Capitol Hill, and they lobby on behalf of franchises, just like, just like gun, you know, the, the, the gun companies have lobbyists, and cigarette companies, and alcohol, et cetera. And so I was being interviewed by the International Franchise Association four weeks ago and also the lobbyist mm -hmm. for our organization, the IFA. And, um, you know, because all these franchises are shut. Mm -hmm. They're closed. Whether it's fitness or restaurant or yogurt franchises, doesn't matter. They're shut. And so the interviewer asked him, he said, hey, so now that we see stats coming out that this COVID thing really wasn't that big a deal, it wasn't as contagious, it wasn't, the death rate has been modified because of, you know, someone could die with COVID, not necessarily because of COVID. When you're up there on Capitol Hill, why do you think the policymakers are not moving quick enough? Mm -hmm. He goes, we have to walk so gently around the policymakers to allow them to save face because their pride won't allow them to pivot. Yeah. And as I saw that <laughs> cop on that yeah. on that man's neck. Yeah. And you could see the look like 
he knows he's supposed to get off. He knows you could yeah. tell. Yeah. You know when someone yeah. knows they're doing something it, wrong. Exactly. But he wouldn't because he wanted to save face. Yeah. In the, despite the death yeah. that took place. Yeah. So that's that's something worth bringing up. Yeah. Prior to, and you know, it's so funny because I was formulating as I was working out today because I get a. I mean, as you know, you know, being athletic, working out, you're, yeah. it does something to your brain. It's good for your brain. You know what that is, the, by the way. Uh, you, my uh, wife's really smart. She yeah. figured it. Well, she she studies a lot. Yeah, because I'm a knuckle dragger. <laughs> so you know, when you're, we're working out, yeah, yeah. swimming, running, yeah. biking, anything with sets and reps, yeah, yeah, rhythmic, yeah. it's called bilateral stimulation. And uh, in the psychology world, it's called EMDR, where they give you two little electrodes, not not nothing that zaps you, but it just goes tick 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 tick, forces both sides of your brain to yeah. work, the left and right side, to solve problems together. Yeah. And so it's called bilateral stimulation. Because I used to tell my wife, I'm like, I don't need therapy because I've had a lot of fucked up childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't need therapy. I just go work out and I solve all my problems. Yeah, yeah. And so she did the study. And she goes, you actually do. It's called bilateral stimulation, EMDR. Yeah. But go on. So as you were doing that, you truly were probably coming up with brilliance. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about what I was going to say tomorrow um, in a post. And, you know... It's some, I don't want to give it all away just yet, but because I might not, be, I might not be able to formulate it properly by tomorrow. <laughs> so, but I say all that to say, um, this pride it has seeped in so much into politics, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about either tomorrow or the day after. Is because you know I'm like you, I'm an, I, I'm an, you know I would consider myself an independent, you know, in similar space as you. I'm not a Democrat yep. and I'm not a Republican, and one of the reasons why years ago I chose to be to not be either one is because I I started to see how, even especially at the political level, there are people on both sides who are more loyal to their side and to their idea of what's right or wrong mm-hmm. than to the people. That they're serving. Than to we the people, exactly. everybody, right? Sir. And, 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 and it's so dangerous and, and that is seeped down to, 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 peop- to the ground floor where people are just so, we live in a very individualistic culture and society. We've been that way for a long period of time where it's all about me, 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 and mine. Me, 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 and my tribe. And so I say all that to say when people have become so rooted to, oh, I'm a Democrat or so rooted to I'm a Republican, when that Republican does something wrong, you're so you're you're pride and you're, and you're so rooted in that Republican that you can't say what that person Bingo. did was wrong. Bingo. So let's actually take that down yeah. and bring it right to that street in Minnesota. Yeah. The two cops on George's back and the one watching, if we could tap into their brain, come on, you know they're going, what he's doing is wrong right now. But me and my tribe. But this is our tribe. And I'm gonna bite my tongue. And the man dies. Exactly. And it trickles down from the top, from the top all the way down bottom. to the yeah. bottom. And, and this, right. is, this is why I wanted to talk to you because You've been very vocal on your social media. Yeah. You and my friend Ryan Tillman, who I tagged in that post mm-hmm. yesterday, he's, a, he's an African-American cop right here in Chino, and he also has this awesome side business called Breaking Barriers, and he'll go and speak at different high schools and stuff, and he yeah. brings communities and cops together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and I, so. yeah. And I texted him uh, yesterday, and I was like, hey, man, first off, thank you for coming to my defense when, when that cat was calling me out. Um, and I said, secondly, you know, your business is going to be doing really good, unfortunately, yeah. with what's happening. He says, yeah, it sure is. And I've been mentoring him for six months now. Yeah. Um, good dude. But 
the perspective that you have is so different. Let me ask you something. When, when that lady turns back, looks at you, turns back, goes to her daughter and says, make sure you lock the car, or you walk into Best Buy yeah. and the security guard is giving you a little extra attention, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the lady at the restaurant does her profiling and goes, here's a check before your food comes out, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> You're like, but what if and I want dessert? And the crazy thing about that story is there was a table of a, a couple right next to us, a, a, a white couple right next to us, and they got their check after they finished eating. Oof. So, because we looked at, me and my boy looked at the table and we were just like, they got, they just finished eating and they got their was check. Was your friend black too? He was black, yeah. Okay. We both in bar. We, you know, we, we yeah, both yeah. in still transit yeah. and we, like, but to her, you guys fit a profile. We fit the profile. Deist and my boy is funny, so he used some choice words when he was, you know, when he in his response. But we ain't gonna steal. We got money. <laughs> we ain't come in and steal your food. So let me let, let me let me ask you, man, because yeah. I, um, I don't really hear too many people talking about. They're talking about the right and the wrong and what police need to do. That. Yeah. How do you feel? Because I know how I felt when I came to America yeah. and. Literally, like the third week we were there, mm -hmm. my dad's getting yelled at, go back to your own fucking country, yeah. you foreigner, you're taking all American jobs. And I'm six years old looking yeah. like, this guy's gonna punch my dad. Yeah, yeah. What the hell's going on? Why is he like, yelling at him like this, yeah. right? And who wants a paper route at two in the morning? He had a paper route, he was, like we were talking about, I think we were talking about offline about the, the, the Jamaicans that have all the, yeah, on, on set, on, on uh, What's that? In Love of Color. In Living Color, <laughs> yeah. right? That, the, the, the show where the Jamaicans had like 10 different jobs. Yeah. My dad was like a, a modern day Jamaican. Like he had, he was washing dishes at a pizzeria, delivering newspapers and then pumping gas. Like what exactly were any of those three jobs that he was taking away from Americans? But so I know how I felt. Yeah. Like I didn't belong that I, I actually started lying and I started telling people that we're French and not Armenian oh, and not communist yeah, because yeah, yeah. I figured French has a little more sex appeal to it I, I don't know like but as a kid you try and figure out like because you go armenia they uh, we don't even know they go you're just a foreigner but it's like well french like that's that's i don't know it sounds royal to yeah. me but anyway i know how i felt how did you feel how do you feel as a black man in a restaurant or in the best buy i'm just i want people to understand this i want to understand this. yeah well for, for for me personally you know i hate the victim mentality yeah you know so no, but I mean, it could be yeah. rage. Like, do you feel anger? Yeah. Do you feel like, hey, listen, lady, I'm a, I'm a fucking seal. I've gone and fought for you. Or, or like, what are you feeling? There, there is a moment of anger, but then for me, there's a moment of understanding. I understand that this is the country we, I've been in, you know, most of my life. I understand that this country has been this way for <laughs> going back to slavery, yeah. right? So there's a there's and then there's a there's a point of inspiration. Or I, I say motivation. I was having this conversation the other day about suffering uh, in, a, in a, a talk, and I was talking about how, you know, the good thing about suffering is there are so many lessons that come out of suffering that you will not be able to get in any other, by sitting in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, the lesson that comes out of a situation like that is I need to be more vocal. I need to, not to that person, but I need to figure out a way to penetrate into this side of America so that I can use my platform to initiate change. I'm the type of person, I'm, I like to be a problem solver. You solver. I see a problem, which to me, that's a problem. Okay, I don't like it, but I ask myself, what are you gonna do about it, mm. right? And that was one of the reasons why I wrote my book, you know, because sure. I know that, you know, me being a SEAL, I know that there's a whole lot of people in middle America, white America, black America, every spectrum of America that's like, ooh, Navy SEAL, cool. I want to read this story. And as you know from reading the book, 
the majority doesn't, yeah. of the book doesn't focus on the team. No, I think it was like chapter 23 and 24 or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, I did that because I wrote this book with the topics that, I, that are in the book as a solution to me walking into a store and somebody looking at me, right? And saying, man, this dude's gonna, because I wanted some, I wanted that person to one day, oh, see this book on the book? Oh, Navy Seal, oh, I'm gonna read this book. Get through it and get a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get you. That, does that make sense? It does. That it all does. black people aren't gonna rob you. That all black people aren't hoodlums. All, you know what I mean? Like, all, it's, for me the answer is, how I feel is I need to come up with a solution to yeah. this problem, yeah. right? But there is a moment of anger, but then at that- You do realize like that's us problem solvers. Like every entrepreneur is a problem solver. Yeah. All an entrepreneur is, is they identify, hey, is this person like due to the created Uber? He's like, cabs smell, they take a long time yeah, to yeah. come. Mrs. Jones is driving around town. She'll just get an app and like, that's a problem. Yeah. He solves a problem. Like all in on, so, but, but that's like half of 1%. Yeah. So uh, we can't condition society to become problem solvers. Yeah, true. Um, again, I'm, like, like what we can do is they can learn problem solving through books, exactly. right? Through books, through examples. But here's a crazy thing. Would you normally think that Asians are dangerous? Like, would you think that Asians are dangerous? Me personally, no. Yeah, no. No. Right? Um, could you believe that for a long time I had, I would get PTSD when I would see a group of Asian dudes. And I'm gonna tell you why. Yeah. When I was 19 years old, I used to carjack, I, I, yeah. I, I did stupid shit. Um, I used to carjack people. So I saw this Honda Civic and certain Hondas in certain years, mm -hmm. the parts are worth a lot of money back in the early 90s. And so I went to carjack this Asian kid. Little did I know that he was in a Asian gang mm -hmm. and the carjacking went wrong, he got away I went to visit my friend uh, at a place called Golf and Stuff, like a mini golf place, yeah. right? To tell him, like, man, you know, I'm like, I lost probably a few hundred bucks on parts, yeah, yeah. you know, just <laughs> and then played some video games. Like yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I was, I was a very different life back then <laughs> than I have today. Yeah, and I'm I'm stacking up karma points yeah. right now in, in hopes that I make it to heaven one day. There you go. Uh, but anyway, so all that said, um, so that dude obviously realizes that I'm at the golf and stuff because he follows me. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. He comes in with 13 other dudes and they beat the dog shit out of me yeah, yeah, and yeah. put me in the hospital. Karmic justice at the highest level, yeah. I had it coming. Years after, like up to like two, three, four years after that, like I would see a group of Asian dudes, like they, they could be like science kids and I would start freaking out, like my body would just yeah. go into, right, self-defense. And interestingly enough, when we moved to the United States, my first friend, he's African-American, yeah. his name is Dwayne, and he taught me English and we played Atari and he, we played a game called Snake in the Grass and he introduced me to all the neighborhood kids. And so like Dwayne was my door into the American youth experience, yeah. right? And then of course, a few times where we lived in Section 8 housing, there was a fair amount of African-Americans uh, in Santa Ana in the in 80s, 82, 83, 84. And one day my brother got in a fight with a tow truck driver and Everyone stood around to watch, and this African-American lady came out of, and my brother got floored. Like, <laughs> like the dude hit him with tire, tire iron, and he just hit the floor. And um, I was a kid watching. My brother's 14 years older than me. So this African-American lady comes out with the pillow, puts it under my brother's head, 
And so, interestingly enough, I grew up with a very different perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? My first friend is African-American. This lady yeah. helped, helped my brother yeah. out. And uh, yet, as all this has happened, I was just doing some introspective look. I'm like, holy shit, man. I was tripping out when I would see groups of Asian dudes yeah, yeah. because of what happened to yeah. me. And so, when you really think about going back to what you said with cops, and there has to be more background checks, more, what was the words you used? Screening. Screening. Yeah. Thank you. Because if you had, especially as in those formidable ages, man, when you're a kid, if you had a bad experience with a black dude, a Mexican dude, a, I tell people I'm Armenian, yeah. and they go, oh, shit, you're part of High Power, the, the Armenian gang in yeah. Glendale? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not that. My dad kept us away from Hollywood and Glendale so yeah. that we can assimilate. Yeah. And, you know, but. Smart. Right. Yeah. Which is crazy because people immediately see, would see me as a threat when they hear Armenian. I was like, no, yeah. no, not like that. So it's crazy the experience that you have as a kid in formidable years. Yes. You grow up and you will show prejudice, maybe not even knowing. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know if there's a solution to that, but that was just the example that came to me. I think there, I mean, like, I mean, going back to my story, you know, like, I hated cops as a kid. Why? Because of the things that I saw. You know, yeah, I would be riding the train or go to go ride the train and you would see four cops beating up somebody because they jumped a turnstile. You know, you would, I would see, you know, cops going to local bodegas and stores and collect money, you yeah, know, yeah, from, yeah. The, from, from the owner. I, and I just, I, and I saw a lot of things and then that had stuff happen to me as a sure. young kid, you know, and then, you know, getting thrown in jail for something stupid or, you know, getting racially profiled by the police officers. But the NYPD in the 80s and the 90s, I mean, they still have a lot of things they need to work through to get better, but it was bad in the 80s and the 90s, like yeah. really, really bad. And because I, I kept on witnessing this, as I walked down the street to the Bronx, as I went to the train station, I was just like, all cops are bad, all cops are racist, I can't stand them, I don't wanna, I will never talk to a police officer, I will never comply with a police officer. And what changed my perspective was, after I joined the military, right? Because, and one of the reasons why I didn't want to join the military was because I associated anybody in the uniform as a police sure. officer, right? <laughs> and so- See, but that's, again, your, your experience in the formidable exactly. year carry over. Exactly, wow. exactly. And so what, what helped begin to change my perspective and say, okay, all police officers aren't bad all police officers aren't racist, is when I got into the military and I began to get around people of all cultures and all backgrounds. And I began to talk to kids from Minnesota, uh, Hispanic kids from California and hear their experiences and they would say their father was a police officer and they don't stand for any of that kind. And that's when I began to realize all police officers aren't bad, which the rea that's the reality. Yeah. There is a, there is a, there is a, there are bad apples in every bunch, right? Um, well, in New York at the time, there were a little maybe bit more than bad normal. apples yeah. than normal. So yeah, which which by the way, here's another human behavior to address that, that you you brought up so perfectly. You, I mean, would you would it be fair to say that when you were young and you saw cops going into the bodegas and collecting money? you know, getting paid off and beating up a dude, four cops beating up a dude who jumped a turnstile. Yeah. Uh, would you say at least less than 50% were bad cops? Is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah, I would say, like, oh yeah, for sure. Like right? 50%. Sure. Yeah, probably 25. Right. I would guess. Right, which yeah. is still a high number compared high, to today. Yeah, yeah. Which is still a high number. Yet your mentality was all cops are bad. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And here's something else. It's, 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 this is, I'm trying to get down to the human behavior of what's happening here that 
we've got a software called FitPro Newsletter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, just it's a software. And there's about 1,600 members in it, users of it. And uh, our software support dude one day comes running into my office. He's like, man, FitPro Newsletter's freaking out. It's got massive problems. Everyone's complaining. Yeah. I go, how many complaints did you get, man? He goes, five. <laughs> five out of 1,600. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what happens is when you get, and, and there was a glitch in the software, yeah. but five out of 1,600, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. customers. It wasn't all, but when you get more than you're used to, yeah. it seems like all. Yeah. When coaching clients of mine tell me, man, man, I tried every marketing system and nothing works. Like, yeah. what did you try? Well, I tried Facebook ads and, and Instagram ads. Listen, there's YouTube, there's Google, yeah. there's fucking billboards, there's yeah. direct mail, there's call centers. You can't say all. And we're yeah. so, uh, the human mind is so easy to go to all. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I, again, I don't know the solution. I just want to bring that to the surface no. and go, all right, so when we're watching the news and we see that a dude got arrested and he's black, yeah. then we go, oh, shoot, maybe they're all bad. He's Hispanic, shoot, maybe they're all bad. Yeah. Or <clears throat> here in, well, when I say here, in Lake Elsinore, they're making, I don't know, what's it, meth, that shit that blows up if yeah. things go wrong. And it's typically every time that happens, it's a white dude on the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. So whenever I see a scraggly white dude, should I think that you're a crackhead? Yeah, yeah. And yet my mind does go to that, like, oh shoot, maybe they're all making meth somewhere, right? I'm like, whoa, dude, easy. Like that's, and it's a human behavior just trying to put people in a box. Yeah, you know, 100%, you know, it's like we gravitate towards the negative. Yeah. You know, I have a saying, um, you know, it's, it's so much easier to find uh, uh, a curse and a gift than it is to find a gift and a curse mm. within the curse, right? Is <laughs> because, mm, you know, deep. it's just so easy to have a gift and just be like, well, that part of the gift is Wrong. so bad and then the whole thing is bad than it is to be in the middle of a bad situation and have this glimmer of hope and, and see it. You can't, so often you can't see yeah. it. And that's just the way, you know, life is. And media definitely doesn't help, you know. Right, all. yeah. You know. And we, let's not forget the media's job is to sell ad space. Oh yeah, make money. To make money. Make money. It's, well, for me, like my opinion on that, I was gonna touch on this too, is, is twofold for me. It's one, money, and it's two, uh, political interest. Agenda, yeah. Right? Agenda, because because whoever is able to uh, 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 spin the news in their favor the most and get the most amount of people to be attracted to that spin, then that equates to certain people getting voted into office. Yep. That equates to, and then that equates to power, right? Because political interest, when you have somebody in a position of political power that's gonna advocate for your political interests, then that means more power for you and exactly. your group, right? Yeah. And your tribe. By virtue of getting that person elected. Exactly. Yep, yep. And uh, I don't know about you guys watching and listening to this, but it ain't often that you hear People get excited and get glued to the TV about the fireman who saves the kitten from the tree. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's usually about the dude that lost a leg in a car accident exactly. or a house that caught fire. And that's just, we're, we're primarily wired for self-preservation. Yep. So we want to see the fear so that we can go, how do I protect myself from it? Yeah. And that's how they keep us hooked because yep. there's got to be a lot more good happening exactly. in the world than just all bad. Yeah. But bad news makes money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good news exactly don't right. make anybody any money. So right? Remy, let's shift gears for, for, for a moment. Yeah. And uh, you know, 34 minutes of, uh, of talking about this. And, I, and again, if I'm not looking to come up with an, hey, here's the answer how we're going to stop racism. Yeah. But I, I really love the fact that you took a, a, a hard stand. Mm -hmm on this and I wanted to uh, make sure that we gave you a voice and also let's it. talk about your book yeah. and 
your crazy ass life. <laughs> your crazy ass life. Your yeah. dad was was a chief? Yeah, he's a chief in the Yoruba tribe. Yes. Tell me how that works. So so Nigerian. Yep. You and your brother were born there? Yep. Well, my brother was born in the States. I was born in Nigeria. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Your brother was born in the States. Yeah. You were born in Nigeria. Yeah. Your mom is a New Yorker. She's a New Yorker. How did, how did, I tell people all the time, my mother and my dad's story is a real coming to America story. It is. They stole it. <laughs> but my mother and my dad, they were uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of Natural History at the same time. I, there was an uh, art expo on um, Yoruba art. Yeah. And uh, my dad happened to be in New York for a business meeting. And so he found out that the Met had this this um, this show on. So he went. My mom has always been into African art. So she went. They met. And then they got married five months later. <laughs> and uh, and then my, and my dad is funny because my dad, he had, you know, being growing up in Nigeria, but being educated in his later years in, in London, he had this smooth British, you know, sure. accent as well. Oh, I bet he and swept so it right he off. Of my mom and, and it's funny because my mom was like, he was telling me he was a prince and this and that. And my mother was like, you ain't no prince, you ain't nothing until she got back to got to, back to Africa and she was exposed to this 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 rich, lavish life. Wow. You know, so. Wow. So your dad's got this amazing life, mm -hmm. um, does really well for himself, and he took massive pride yeah. in the home country. Yes. Right? Yes. Nigeria. Yes. His priority, he would tell my mother all the time, my priority is my country. Um, he hated the kind of, he, you know, I, I get a lot of who I am from him, obviously, um, and he was a problem solver. When he saw a problem, he wanted to come up with a solution for it. And one of the problems he saw, not just in, in the UK, but all over the world, was this, this false impression of Africans, that African people were a bunch of uneducated Bush people who, you know, don't know how to speak and, you know, they eat on their knees or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so he, because he hated that narrative, he went back to Nigeria to establish his businesses, um, but his primary Primary, primary goal was to essentially build this business sector, this business within Nigeria, this big area called the Lagoon Development Project, yeah. where people from all across the world could come to and, and do business and, and exchange ideas and, and you know do all the things that my diet had planned to. Is this where he asked for the piece of the water? Yeah, and they, yeah. they were like, why do you want a piece yeah, of the water? He's yeah, like, yeah. just give me the piece of the water. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, so in the 1970s, of, uh, my, my dad, he bought this massive plot of land called Maracle. And uh, it, was a, it was a landfill, it was trash, it was garbage. And uh, he bought it because he wanted to take that to develop this, this city on, this, this business sector on. Uh, but unfortunately, towards uh, uh, halfway through the 19, about 1975, um, the Nigerian government stripped it from him. They took that from him and said, you can't have it. Um, I, don't, I don't know all the, 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 all the history behind it, but in short, they took it from him. And my dad went to court for 10 years and fought the Nigerian government for the land back. And finally, they got tired of my dad. And uh, they said, okay, we'll give you the money back. My dad said, I don't want the money back. It was eight, he paid eight million pounds for it, right? Um, so they asked him, they said, well, what do you want? And my dad said, um, I want the lagoon. Uh, and the lagoon was just a body of water, and they all laughed at him. They said, "The lagoon? Why do you like? Why do you want the lagoon?" He said, "Don't worry about it. Just give me the lagoon." Um, and my dad, being an engineer, he hired you know um, he hired Dutch engineers to come and dredge the foreshore to develop because he wanted to develop that island. That that he wanted to develop that part of water into land mm -hmm. because from my dad's mindset was if I create something that was never there, no one could ever come back away. and say what they said with Maracle, that this was ours. So that's why he took the water, dredged it, and created the island which exists to this day in order to be able to say this is ours forever. Talk um, about a problem solver. Yeah.
Yeah. And by the way, that's what they did in the United Arab Emirates, right? Yep. yep. Also, UAE, you take, Palm yeah. Islands. Mm -hmm. um, I even think part of Heathrow Airport, from what I understand, yep. has been dredged. A lot of that has been dredged to create create the parts of the airport. So yeah. So so now now we're really diving into what the Empire show is about. Like, there's a man who. He was born in Nigeria. Yep, born right? in Nigeria. He was the firstborn son to my, to my grandfather. There you go. Mm -hmm. And it is a corrupt government. Very, very corrupt. Very similar to yeah. the Armenian government, which yeah. was another thing we talked When I read about the part yeah. in your book where some politicians who would blow the taxpayers' money, yeah. and then in court they would say, a, a snake, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lizard, a squirrel, yeah. whatever came yeah. in, a, a, a fish, a yeah, snake, yeah. a fish, and something stole, else, yeah. <laughs> to stole it. And, and that was the answer. And it yeah. went into the books. Yeah, yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. That's yeah. bananas. Yeah, it's, it's, how do you, even to this day, a, a person will run for office, get elected, and they will come out a billionaire. Or somebody will go in and become a general, mm -hmm. rise to the ranks, become a general, get put over some specific some position that, of influence, in the military and come out a billionaire. <laughs> like, how does that happen? Where's that money coming from? Where's that money coming from? You yeah. know, the uh, the minister of oil, um, she's been investigated because I think it was something like $20 billion or something like that that disappeared. Um, um, billion with a B. Bill, B, with a bill over the course of, B, sorry, billion with a B yeah. over the course of her tenure as the uh, minister of oil. And these are all cases you can look up. And people always, every time I talk about corruption in Nigeria, people say, well, there's corruption in, in, in America. And yeah, there is corruption in America. However, the corruption in Nigeria is at a, at a level that is that far surpasses. Yeah, yeah it's in your face. And it's ostensible. Yeah. As soon as you get off the plane, like I was in Nigeria, as soon as I got off the plane, custom officers were just like, well, do you have a gift for me? If you do not have a gift, you might have to go back. What do you mean a gift? Wow. A gift, you know, gift, gift. They mean money. Yeah. So you get bribed as soon as you enter into the country. Question. Yeah. Obviously, they know that you know the culture, the tradition. Uh -huh. If I went there with my white American wife yeah. as a tourist, yes. would they be hitting me up for oh, gifts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. And if I play dumb and like, I don't know what you're talking about. At, at, at some point, they do back off, you know, but yeah. but yes, you will. Would you get pressured more because you're supposed to oh, know what's up? Well, because I'm Nigerian and then I have an American accent even more so. Gotcha. Right. So so now it's like because when because when they see a black American, they're just like, oh, if you're you're black, you're from America. You're loaded. Right. You have they money see you loaded, to be able yeah. to, come in, to, to, <laughs> yeah. to come here. So it's, I mean, on the drive back to the airport on my way out. Um, we got stopped at gunpoint, right? Because the driver, we were trying to get to the airport and the driver, you know, he shifted into another lane illegally. I mean, technically, you know, as it relates to, to the driving laws. And a police officer stopped him, pulled up his AK-47 and it ordered that he to, for him to get out the car. And uh, I was mad, I was hot, me and my brother in the car, my brother's like, Remy, Listen, man, they be going to work here, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. And my other brother's like, yeah, the cop's just going to bribe him. And, and they negotiated back and forth. And the cop it ended up, we ended up giving him, like, I don't know, like, ended up equating to, like, $20 in order to get off. But it's systemic yeah. the from the policing. Yeah. I mean, we talk about police problems here. The police problems there, you know, like. So, yeah, the corruption was bad. And that's what essentially led to my father's downfall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, ultimately, with the way your father died, he was mm -hmm. bit by a dog. Yep, yep. And that led to him getting on some medication, that there was some complication between Bad the medication. They gave him some bad medication. Yeah. Um, um, it was and, supposed to be like an anti-rabies yeah, medication, right? Yeah, anti-rabies medication. It was something else. 
um, and he ended up taking it, and uh, he ended up dying, you know? And now at this point... And at the same time, he was battling the Nigerian government in court right. to, to regain the island that had now been developed, that they had, that the Lagos state government came in and said, this land, now this island that you develop doesn't belong to you because the federal state government that said, okay, what do you want? And when you asked for the foreshore, the federal state government was never allowed to give you that body of water. It belongs to the Lagos state government. That foreshore belongs to the Lagos state government. So that's what they used, but they conveniently waited until an island was developed to say, oh, sir, you are wrong. I love in the book when you do the accent. I'm listening to the audio book and we just start busting out with the accent. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so this happens and of course mm -hmm. now all of a sudden, and your mom was like used to like having servants drawing a bath and yep. a chauffeur and horses, horses, compound, lavish parties. And uh, all of a sudden mm -hmm. dad passes away mm -hmm. And mom is asking your older half-brother, yep, am I right? Yep. John? Yep. Like, hey, so what's the deal with the money? Like, mm -hmm. how do I live? I've got the kids. Yep. And effectively, there was no more money left. Yeah. My dad had put everything into that island. He already started signing contracts with McDonald's, Marks and Spence. I mean, he signed contracts with with what with um, restaurants and wow. and and and, de and other department stores. I mean, he had leveraged all of his money because he he knew as soon as I start selling off this office space, and this is up. I mean, that island now is worth billions of dollars. Oh, I'm sure. Is it fully developed? It's fully with... developed. They put it wasn't. Me it, they made it residential. Okay. So it's called. Have you been on it? Have I've you... been on. Yeah, I went in, when I was in Nigeria. I went there. How did you feel when you were on there? It was sad. Yeah. It was sad that my dad had put so much effort into this, and now his kids can't even claim it as their own. Has your mom gone back to it? No, she never has. She doesn't even want to go. She has no desire to ever go back to Nigeria. I would imagine. No. You know. Um, Is your mom with us today? Yeah, she's in New York. She's Good. in New York. Good. How's her health? Look up on, on Instagram. My mom, she's a fitness. She's a fitness oh, okay. All right, woman. good. So she, good. She's like she's about she's about the uh, seventy, but she looks like she's like forty five. She works out every day. Oh, good. For um, That's fantastic. Post workout videos every day. Yeah. You bring on the staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there. She's hired. <laughs> she eats right. Yeah, she's hired. That's yeah. great. So, so at that point, do you remember any of that? Like the conversation of like, hey, we're broke. No, not really, you know, and one of the reasons why I don't, because when we fully transitioned to the States permanently, you, my mom did a fantastic, fantastic job of masking the reality of what had happened. Okay. You know, because my mother knew, as a matter of fact, I remember when my mother told me that my father died. I'll never forget it. She took me and she put me on her right side and put my brother on her left side and it's on this red chair. Sorry, who's older? My brother's a year older than me, Matthew. And, uh, and she said, you know, your dad's gone and he's not coming back. He has died. And she said it in such a way, uh, such a calming way, that me and my brother were just like, because we're young, I'm five, my brother's six, we don't fully understand death or what that means, right? We just said, okay, and we went back to playing, right? And so that's just a snapshot of how my mom carried herself throughout that period, throughout that transition period. She, I never saw her cry. I mean, at, during that time, during that season, yeah. I never saw her breaking down. She held it together because she knew if I break down, or if I lock myself in my room, 
who's going to take care of these kids. Sure. And if I'm breaking down, then my kids are going to break down and it's going to create this never ending cycle. So people ask me all the time, Remy, where do you get this level of perseverance to, to overcome the things that you have overcome? And I, I say, you know, I had a living example of it every day of my life, you know, and my mother talk, going back to what we talked about later, how people are the way they are. A lot of the way I am comes exactly from my mother. And so mm. I didn't really, so it wasn't until I was about eight years old that it really hit me that my dad was gone and we are in poverty. What happened then? Like, did you process through it? Did you cry? Do you rage out? Do you freak out? Do you ask your mom? What happens? I, I cried through it. I cried through it. I was, uh, I, I'll never forget it. I was, um, I was in my bedroom and me and my brother, we had this pullout bed. Uh, it was like one bed on top and then the second bed that I slept on, we would pull out and that's how we slept. And, uh, uh, and we had this lamp in the corner. The shade was off of it. I can't remember, me and my brother broke the shade. So it was just like this skeleton of yeah, a lamp. Yeah. And uh, there was a picture of my dad on top of my dresser. And I just remember just looking around my room in our lack and, you know, having seen at this point, you know, my mother's making me and my brother wash our underwears and socks out with ivory soap because she couldn't afford laundry detergent, uh, laundry um, detergent. You know, we're going to the rent office with her and she, seeing her plead for extra time to pay the rent. And so all of these things that I have begun to start seeing and, you know, cohese, so to speak, with with that situation. I just broke down and I was just like, man, if my dad was here, we wouldn't have this life that we have. We would have a better life. And I just yeah. remember staring at my father's picture and realizing that. And my mother came into the room and she said, what's wrong? And I said, Ma, I miss my dad. I wish my father was here because if my father was here, we would have a better life. And you know, she threw her arms around me and said, we're gonna make it, we're gonna be all right. And I would say for me, that's when I made the decision to find a father. Uh, or, or, you know, find something that would fill that void in order to get me through. And that's when I think I decided, and, I, and I, I could be off, but that's where I feel like I decided that I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be broke. I'm going to be somebody, whether I do it illegally or whether I do it legally. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to be like my father. Right around the age of eight. Right around the age of eight. Yeah. This is bananas. Yeah. I'm going to tell you why. And then we're going to come back to perseverance and problem solving. Dude, this is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the, the shit that happens to us in our in our youth yeah. is so powerful. Yeah. The, the trauma, the suffering, the, all of that is so powerful because as you're describing this, I'm like, this is a parallel to my life when my sister comes home crying. So I'm the oops baby. I wasn't yeah. supposed to be born. My brother's 14 years older. Oh. My sister's 16 years older than me. And so they kind of raised me along with my mom and yeah, dad. Yeah. So I have two sets of parents, both beat all of them. Because <laughs> yeah, the Armenian culture, they just slap you around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but that's a whole different story that I can talk to my therapist about, not you. Yeah. Um, so uh, one day my sister, so we came here in 1980. It's probably... I'm eight, so I'm probably 82, 83, because I'm eight or nine years old. My sister come, comes home crying, working from at the pizzeria, same pizzeria my dad worked at, and she's crying. My dad says, what's going on? What yeah. happened in Armenian? And she says, the owner of the business took a sip out of her paper cup, like about every hour takes a sip, and she's disgusted mm. because then that's like her water. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to make sure that she wasn't drinking 7-Up from oh, the dispenser, yeah, the yeah, vending, yeah, yeah. The, right? Because yeah. it's the restaurant, because she was a wait, waitress yeah. there. And so she's just like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to work there anymore. And my dad's like, look, you know, we're all paying for this rent yeah. at Section 8 housing. We still have to all work to be able yeah. to make it. And being the youngest one, my brother's working multiple jobs, sister's working multiple jobs. Dad, it's just me and my mom at home. And I'm hearing all this. I'm like, shit. And I remember telling my sister that when I grow up, I'm going to be rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she'll never have to work for that guy. Yeah. 
today she works for me, and Joan will tell you, she works for me from home. She does all my customer support. Awesome. And uh, it's, she had to remind me this four years ago, because mm. she's been working for me now for four years. She goes, do you remember when you were eight? And I was crying, wow. and it was the only thing I could do was like, I'm gonna be so rich yeah. that you're gonna work for me and not for anyone else. Yeah. And it's bananas how an experience like that, yeah. that you had, that I had, Shaped us. That, yeah, shaped us. It's yep. like a little seed that becomes that, that tree. Yes. Yeah. No, 100%, 100%. And I think, again, you know, people ask me, I get this question often, Remy, if you can go back and change any part of your life, you know, what would you change? And my answer is always the same, nothing. Mm, because same. it was all of those, those heartaches, those sleepless nights, the rejection, the pain, the mistakes, you know, selling drugs, you know, all of those things that I did that made me the man that I am today. And I wouldn't be who I am, and I wouldn't have been the person that I was five, six, seven years ago if it wasn't for that kid. Yep. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Don't forsake small beginners. That's something I try to tell mm. people all the time because it's just so much within it. It's valuable, it's yeah. valuable. Dude, you mentioned perseverance and yeah. you said, I get it from my mom. Yeah. And then you mentioned problem solving, you said, I get it from my dad. Yeah. My brain goes to, because I'm always thinking about this, is it nature, is it nurture? Like, what made me so yeah. driven? And I think it's... Combination, I think it's combination. Is it? I think it's a combination. I think that, you know, and, and, and the reason why is because, you know, I own a consulting firm on, on, the, on the side, and I've been doing this for years, uh, where I, I, I train pro athletes, collegiate athletes, Olympians, and even corporations on times, at times on, on mil not just SEAL principles, but military principles that translates into business, you know, you know, mental toughness, teamwork, communication, leadership, that sort of thing. And one thing that I found specifically with the athletes, a lot of these athletes that I work with, they're just gifted. They're just naturally gifted. The things that they could do with their body, it's obvious that it's nature, right? That sure. genetically they got exactly what they needed in order to be the studs that they have. But they're missing so much more because they don't have it up here, mm -hmm. right? And they never had to work hard to get to that next level. And because they never really had to work hard, everything has come so easy, they, they, can't, they will probably never get to that next level, right? And that's the difference between the Michael Jordans of the world, and I'm not gonna say another athlete's name because I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm putting them in a bad light, but and other athletes, right? Yep. Michael Jordan, I, don't, he, I truly believe that it was, part of it was nature, but then a lot of part of it was nurture. And a lot of part of it was him putting in a recognizing, hey, I'm gifted, but I need to stay in the gym extra, mm. you know, spend that extra time in the gym. And so, you know, again, I see this a lot with athletes where they have it from, a, from you know, from a you know, genetic standpoint, but in order for them to get better, they're missing some components, whether it's a mental toughness component, whether it's the ability to, to work with other people, whether it's the ability to reason and think through things really, really fast, they're missing that piece, right? Hard work beats talent when exactly. talent doesn't work hard. There you go. Right, one of my favorite quotes. Mm -hmm. I love that, I love that. So now all of a sudden you're, you grow up and you, um, obviously you've made this commitment around the age of eight that yeah. like, I'm, I'm gonna make it no matter how. Mm and I'm gonna do well for myself. And uh, was the shoe job before the selling phones or yeah, was the phone, which yeah. one was first? Yeah, the phone, the shoe was first. The All shoe right. Was first, yeah, yeah. I, I, I love this, and, and guys, if you're like, hey B, why are you talking to him about like his scams that he was doing at a shoe store in Manhattan? I'm gonna tell you why, because one of my, uh, one of my good friends, he, uh, back in the day, maybe about 
10 years ago, if you're reading Maxim magazine yeah. or Playboy magazine and you see the full page ad for the penis enlargement pills, yeah. my friend started those, that company. Okay. And he went literally from zero to $100 million a year wow. in one year. And as I, his name is Vincent. And I said, Vincent, um, what's the secret to marketing? Because he's a brilliant marketer. He found a, basically an insecurity that men have. Yeah. And he just pushed that fucking yeah. button, Right? <laughs> And I said, Vincent, what's the secret to making money, to like great marketing? And we're talking and he says, you have, to, he says a good marketer has to have the ability to con someone, but the ethics not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now here you were, we're about to give an example of yeah. you maybe doing some shady shit, yeah. right? Making money. But guys and gals watching and listening to this, I want you to take another layer deep, go deeper and deeper and see how brilliant uh, some of the schemes are here because truly I've all, when Vincent said that to me, I'm like, Oh shit, yeah. my whole life, dude, I would walk through the grocery store with my mom yeah. and I would see a lady's purse on her shopping cart. And I, I, I would like, here's how I would steal it. And she yeah. would never know. And yeah. here's, the, here's how I'd go out and I'd be gone. And I don't even know why it's yeah. not like I needed the purse. Yeah. Right. But my mind would go right into conning someone, yeah. finding the easy button for money. But anyway, so that said, um, the shoe store. Tell us, tell us, tell us the story of how you figured out how. Because you were, you were making like four ninety five an hour, four twenty five an hour. Yeah, minimum wage. Minimum wage. Like ninety. What's that? Ninety six, ninety five. I can't even remember. And you get a little commission when yeah, you sell a shoe. Little commission. How much was that commission? Nothing. I mean, it was like a percentage of the shoe. Like I don't know, maybe eight percent or something. Like okay. That. So yeah. so nothing. I mean, if yeah, we're nothing, talking yeah. back then, I don't know how much for shoes. Yeah. Fifteen, twenty bucks, thirty bucks. Maybe if they're Jordans, maybe a little more. Yeah. Um, but it was trivial, the yeah. commission. Yeah, yeah. And so Remy, of course, needs money. I need money. I need a lot of money. <laughs> I'm going to start it off and you're going to finish it. Yeah. Dude comes in in a hurry saying, yeah. I need a pair of sneakers. Exactly. So I was in the shop by myself. The um, manager was downstairs at the time tending to the stock. And, uh, and this guy rushes in and he's just like, hey, my shoe. I can't remember exactly what happened. But what I do remember is he's just like, I need shoes right now. And he... We looked at the wall and he pointed out really quick, picked the shoe, he's just, give me this and this size. I run downstairs, I get him the shoe, I come up, and he's like, how much? I told him, he said, here's the cash. And he gives me the cash, he says, I gotta go. He, and he gave me, I was like, this is more, this is more than, than what it costs. He said, keep the change, don't worry about it. So he gives me the cash, I give him the shoes, he boogies out, and he, well, he takes off his shoes and he puts them in a box that, you know, I because he put on the brand new shoe. In the brand new shoe box. In the brand new shoe box. Copy. And so I go to the register and I said and, and and I said to myself, this dude just gave me the cash. I have a box that we can put in our lost sales section or damaged or whatever section. How about I keep doing this? You know, and I could reduce the price, keep the cash, and make money. Nobody's got this is a this was athlete's foot at the time. So this sure. was a big sneaker yeah, chain, you know, place. back in the day. Nobody's gonna be miss miss 10, 20, 30 shoes here and there. Yeah. And once I figured that out, that's what I began to do. So when customers came in, um, I would whisper to them, of course, and I would just, if the shoes were $80, I would say, hey, if you can give me cash, because credit cards had just started, so some people were coming in and trying to charge on their credit cards, and I would tell them, if you can give me, if the shoes were $80, if you give me 60 or $50 cash, just give it to me and you guys, you can boogie out, you sure. know? And they would do that and I, it just started building from there. And you're just pocketing all that so cash? Pocketing all that. Well, I, w I wasn't doing it with every client because yeah, yeah, yeah. too suspicious, but yeah. I started to pocket the cash and then I, started, I was in high school at the time. Everybody wants new shoes. Everybody wants fresh shoes. Everybody wants Jordans. 
Oh. So what am I doing? So they all come see Remy. They come see Remy. I'm the sneaker man. Mm. So now I'm, I'm making even more money and I'm able to kind of space it out so that I'm being smart about it. And I learned that, you know, growing up in the streets and doing some of the things I was doing early on, I learned that you can't, <laughs> you can't be as ostensible. You can't, you know, be selling every sneaker because you're going to eventually get caught. You need to be smart about it. So I learned the system of spacing it out. And there were times when I would ask for extra hours and then we, I would get extra hours and I would work on a weekend. And part of what I did was I had my, that was my sneaker scam. Sure. I made a lot of cash. And you quit that job and you yeah. moved on to uh, selling. Well, from there, I went, from there, I went into the drug game. Okay. So from there, right. from there, like that's where I got a, a good enough seed money, a good amount of seed money to go buy product, enough product to be able to chop it up and sell okay, it. Okay. So you would cut it up and then yep. you would sell it. Yep. Yep. And I, and, and I had realized again from a, a lot of my, my business mindset came from my dad. You know, these were things that I wasn't educated on. These were just things that intuitively I, I kind of figured out. And, you know, growing up in the Bronx, it's like a drug deal on every corner. Right. Yeah. And so I realized, you know what? I'm not trying to get in competition with anybody, so I went up to New Paltz, upstate New York, went to the campuses, and I would sell up there and make money, and you know, it was less threatening you know, from a police standpoint, and I would do what I did, and then I would come back down. Wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. you can't just breeze over that. There, yeah. There's a tremendous, oh, I just sound like Trump right there. Right? <laughs> tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. it's gonna be tremendous. <laughs> it's gonna be big. Uh, <laughs> it's gonna be beautiful, yeah. it's gonna be beautiful. China, yeah. huge. Uh, huge, yeah, yeah, we got all the Trump huge. buttons. Um, Wait a minute. This this is awesome because our friend Jesse Itzler calls it like have another flavor of brownie. Like you know, mm -hmm. make a different brownie. If all the brownies are the same, you better have a different brownie. Yeah. Your brownie better be different. Mm -hmm. and effectively, it's what differentiates you. Yeah. So it's easier to stand on any corner in Bronx mm -hmm. and sell. What was it that you were selling? Or maybe you don't want to say it. <laughs> sell drugs. Yeah. Sell drugs. We'll talk about that often. I keep it generic for my Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's easy to stand on the corner and sell yeah. drugs. Yeah. They're in your neighborhood, but you're like, one, I don't want to compete with everyone. One, there might be a price issue if you compete, yeah. right? Yep. And so it creates price erosion. Like, hey, he's selling it for this. That means mm -hmm. I got to sell it for that. Or the other thing might territory. be territory, which means now risk, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And so you went to where? Uh, upstate New York. Upstate New York. Poughkeepsie, there was a college out there in New Paltz area. Okay. So I would go to New Paltz, Poughkeepsie okay. area, and I would sell up there. And so less risk, obviously free market. Yep. And yeah. I had a place to stay, a good friend of mine I grew up with. Um, we were in kindergarten together, Dominican cat. You know, him and his parents moved out to Bronx to give him a better life. So I, I would sleep in his basement. So I would go up there, me and my buddy, Rod, who's actually in prison right now, we would go up there, sleep in his basement, do what we needed to do for the weekend or a few days, and then head back down. Okay, gotcha. So you'd make your money in Poughkeepsie and come back down. Brilliant, brilliant. Mm -hmm. Guys, understand how smart this is, that there's always, and we talk about this on many different episodes, mm -hmm. where when everyone else zigs, you got to zag. Yeah. You got to zag. Um, and so that's that's a great great lesson there in marketing. And so at what point do you decide to leave the drug game and go and sell those cell phones illegally? Yeah, I, well, I kind of still stayed in the drug game while I was doing the cell phones, but uh, it, it was getting really really hot. The risk uh, didn't out didn't outweigh no the risk outweighed the reward, Got right? Yeah. Um, and because um, 
when you go to an area over and over and over again, at some point, somebody's going to re realize that, recognize that pattern, and then the police are going to come. And sure. Then you're going to it's going to get too hot, and so I I got this. I took this job at a company called MCI WorldCom. So I, I started out as a legitimate job at the same time while I'm still hustling selling drugs, and. Um, I was, you know, I would go places and cell phones and I would set up tables in front of Columbia University and other places and, you know, this is when cell phones just first came out, so I would put the put the box on the table and have all the paperwork to fill out. Yeah. That wasn't working out too well for me. And then uh, finally, one of my coworkers at the company, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, he showed me what he was doing. So Why do you think he did that? I mean, there's there's got to be a lot more reps there. I think, one, he he knew that he, one, he knew I was struggling. Two, he knew I was a young kid <laughs> that was trying to make sure. money, right? And I think he, I also think that he didn't think I would be one to snitch or Not, say anything. I think okay. he knew that I was so impressionable that he was like, you know what? Yeah. I'm making all this money over here. He's gonna throw you bring this kid, let me bring this kid under my wing. And he did. and. Uh, Essentially what he taught me and I'm not advocating for this by any means. So, you know disclaimer, right? Um, you know, he would Get people's information date of birth social security card number full name and didn't really need an address But he would make up addresses sometimes and he would run the line of credit and if their credit checked out You could activate up to three phones and so once he showed me that um, I kind of took that process and I had a buddy of mine in high school. Well, I, I met him a little bit later. His girlfriend worked at a hospice, so people were dying all the time. And uh, he, she, his girlfriend would get him the information. I would pay him for each sheet of paper, and each sheet of paper had like I can't remember like 10, 10 people's information on it, you know. And then I would activate. And each one of those pieces of information was one phone. Oh, three phones. That's each right. Each person's information was three phones. And one phone was good for three months before. Three months. Yeah, because it was shut off. The phone was saying, oh, "You have the phone first thirty days. You don't get your first bill until until after thirty days. After well, you got thirty days, and then you would get a bill, right? After you got your bill, then you had like thirty days to pay it." And then if you didn't pay it, then you had 30 days before the company turned it off, <laughs> right? And so the phones would stay on for 90 days. And so what I started doing was I would go back to the drug dealers. I would go back to, you know, all the people that, you know, I knew I grew up with high school, people in the streets, um, some friends, and I would just sell them. I would sell the phones and I would sell, and, and, and you know, you didn't have to buy the phone because that was part of the plan, right? So if you activated the phone, your, 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 your phone, the, what you were paying for the actual phone was built into the phone right. bill, right? Yeah. And you got to remember at this point, cell phone bills are 20, the, the plans were like $29.99 yeah, a month. I remember that. But if you went over, you only got like 30 minutes or like 45 minutes, something ridiculous. And then after you went over that time, I mean, yeah. it was like a dollar and change a minute, right? Yep. And so um, I started selling these phones, and I was selling for about five hundred, depending on what type of phone it was. Sometimes three hundred. I was selling the highest ones were nine hundred. Those were the uh, Motorola StarTech phones yep. that were super. They looked like the Tic Tac. They were shaped like that, and they flipped up, and they were staying on for ninety days. And I was making tens of thousands of dollars a week, and the risk was really low because at the time there wasn't really much, there wasn't much oversight. Because you got to remember, this is this is two thousand you know, 2001, yeah. right? So there yeah. wasn't a lot of oversight and mm -hmm. cell phones were becoming uh, popular and I was, I was just making tons of money. And then I, gradually I was just like, I don't need to do drugs anymore. Right, <laughs> right, because you're making more. Because I'm making doing way this. more money yeah. at a lower risk. Yeah. And at what point did you get those two warrants? One in New Jersey, one in New York. I got, that, that was during that time period. So I got, okay. I got one in, in late 2000 and another one 
uh, in in uh, middle of 2001. And how old are you at this point? At this point, um, I'm tw 19. 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. When I found out I had the warrants to go join the military, I was 19. Gotcha. Yeah. But but years before, when you were a kid, you wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Yeah, right? yeah, yes and no. So I saw two films. There were there were two films that really inspired me. One was one was uh, Bad Boys, and another one was The Rock. And now the, the Rock was when the I Rock really found out. Movie. Yeah, that was a, when I first found out about the Navy SEALs. And as a kid, as a teenager at that time, because this was '96, it came out. I said to myself, if I ever turn my life around, that's what I would do. So it wasn't like this thing where every day I was like, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL, I'm gonna right. be a Navy SEAL. It was just like, you know what? I could do that. Right. And if I ever turn around and turn my life around, I'm gonna do that. Right. It was just one of those things. And then that dream, obviously, you know, that idea kind of faded away because it wasn't rooted in anything deep. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But it was it was an idea that lay dormant, yeah, but I believe still took roots, man. Yeah. Because yeah. then when you decided to straighten your life out, yeah. You went back to that idea. Yeah, I went back to that idea. And, and, and I think a part of that, a part of the reason why I went back to, well, there was a few few um, reasons why I went back, back to the idea. One was pride. Um, as you know from the story, I was big into music. And, and you know, I wanted not only that I want to be a rapper, but I wanted to be a music mogul. The reason why I was doing what I was doing with the drugs and with the cell phones, because I was investing that money into my record company, mm -hmm. right? And so at the time, the pinnacle that the highest thing that you could do coming from where I came from was be be like a music mogul in the music industry, right? Sure. And uh, and when that dream kind of fell apart because all of the comp, you know, you know the story. So everything shut down. We won't, I won't give away people to read in the book, but when all that stuff kind of went away, I was just like, and I and it, I kind of had to go into the military. I was just like, okay, if I'm going to do anything. It's going to be the pinnacle. <laughs> sure. I'm not going to not knocking anything else in the Navy, but it was just like music mogul, Navy SEAL. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and they're two different categories. Yeah, two but different categories. Both tip of the spear. Exactly, Got exactly. It. So, so part of it was pride, and another part of it was excellence. You know, my mother, from the time I was a young boy, my mother always preached to my brother and I excellence. Whatever you do, you do it right. Whatever you do, you try to be part of the best. You know, I remember there were times when my mother would make my brother, wash, my brother and I wash and dry the dishes, and she would come and inspect them afterwards. And mm. if they weren't near perfect, she would make us to put all the dishes in the sink and make us start all over again. And she would do the same thing with reports and writing. She would make my brother and I read New York Times articles and, and books and, and all kinds of literature and then we would have to write reports on them. And if they weren't near perfect, she would make us do it all, all over again. So my mother was always about excellence, excellence, excellence. So I had, when I found out that being a Navy SEAL was, those, I was excellence personified, that, you know, that along with I wanted to be part of the best, I wanted to do something as great as what I thought at the time was, was great, mm -hmm. which I'm not knocking it, but that's great, that's what I was gonna do. Gotcha. Of course, you walk into the recruiter's office, mm -hmm. And you're like, hey, I'm a record company mogul. I got yeah, well, you yeah, said yeah. I've got my own record company, <laughs> I got my right? Own record company, right? You bring yeah. the pride along with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, bring and, the pride. Uh, I was trying to find a swab. Like it was going from New York, from New York. She's like, yeah, I'm from New York, and I'm trying to, you know, run game on her. And she's like, all right, fool, let's see if you got what yeah. it takes. Because she was from the Bronx, so um, okay. So yeah. she really took a liking to you, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She I, and and I later found out. You'll find. I mean, she died. She died two years. I after was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah. So she died two years of a really rare autoimmune disease. Oof. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the back of the book, I put a, a link in the back of the book for because um, John Hopkins, Hopkins Institute, you, they created like a, a farm people could donate to in order to help because they still haven't found a cure for the disease that yeah. she died of. And uh, but she was from the Bronx, and 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 she knew that 
kids like me wouldn't get a chance and yeah. didn't have a chance if we stayed in the streets. Yeah. And I later found out from her brother that she would drive around the Bronx and go to old friends who were on the street selling drugs and say, listen, I see where your life is going. If you don't turn your life around, you know where you're gonna end up. And she would try and get them in the military. Mm. You know, she even did that for her brother when he got a misdemeanor. She came back home and helped get him into the Air Force. And so she was like a Robin Hood in the hood. Sure. You know, she took that job as a recruiter because she not only did she want to, you know, part of her job was to get people in the military, but she wanted to get specific people. She wanted to be able to give people a second chance. Yeah. And it was a blessing that I ran into her. She really was your angel, like you described. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in that way, she said, uh, hey, you got two warrants. We're not taking yeah. you anywhere. Yep. Yep. But uh, yeah. Yeah. When she ran my background and she t and she told me I had those warrants, I got up and got ready to run out. <laughs> out the office. I got ready for so, like, so, I mean, you, you knew you had the warrant. I didn't know I had the warrant. Oh, you didn't know you I had the warrant. I didn't know I had the warrant. Got it. Got I, it. Okay, like, the whole like, time I'm thinking, Remy, why do you walk into a recruiter's office with warrants, man? No, I thought I was I thought I was clean. Gotcha. I thought I was clean. So I, you I, were as shocked as she was. Like, yeah, so when she said you here? got warrants, yeah. I was I thought it was for the <laughs> stuff I was doing with the cell phone. God. Because it. people were getting locked up and going to federal prison. Right, right. People started getting caught out of the office yeah. that I was working out of and that's one of the reasons why I left okay and so I was like this is it this is this I, I got caught I'm going to federal prison Oof. like there's no defense because mm -hmm. of the stuff that I was doing and and so when she said that I went to go boogie out <laughs> you know because I and then you know she stopped me and said what are you doing <laughs> and I said I'm not trying to go to jail today I, I at least want to go home and right. get some things settled and she told me to come back the next day you know and uh and I said for what she said, just come back tomorrow. Listen to me and come back tomorrow. And she asked me if I had a suit. She said, no. She said, do you have a collar shirt and some nice pants? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, and I came back the next day in a collar shirt and some nice pants. And she was in her dress uniform. And she took me to both judges, the judge in New Jersey, the judge in New York, advocate on my behalf, say, hey, this kid has made some mistakes, but he has potential. He's trying to turn his life around. I know he's not perfect. Can you expunge his record? Wow. And, you know, both judges unanimously expunged my record. And, and by this point, 9-11 had already happened. 9-11 had already happened, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so, and that was, I think that was another reason why the judges, judges were more keen on expunging my record, because they was like, okay, if this guy's going to do this after an act of war and he's sure. super patriotic, you know, and I wasn't patriotic, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't patriotic at all. I mean, I was just trying to get out, get into the military to get out of the situation I was sure. in. And, and Are you patriotic now? Do you consider yourself patriotic? Yeah, I would consider myself patriotic now, because I've been to other parts of the world. And, I, and I've seen how people in other parts of the world live. And yes, we do have our faults and our issues here in America, but at the end of the day, I'd rather be in America than some of the other places I've been in. And I'd rather be in America than the country I was born in because of the way things are there. And so I would consider myself definitely patriotic now because um, mm. yes, we have a whole lot of issues that we have to work through, but I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Not even. I've been, I've been to those places. Yeah. I mean, I've been to those places. And, uh, you know, coming from where you come from, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I mean, in, in Nigeria, it's illegal to be gay. You could be killed for being gay in, 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 in Nigeria. I mean, uh, there's so many things in Nigeria that's, that you can't just do. Right. And, and, and there's other places you can't just speak out against your government. There is no freedom of speech. Right. You know what I mean? And there, there is no a due pro there is no nothing, period, right? And that's why I love the fact that we can go protest. And I'm all for the protest, right? But 
you go protest in some of these other countries that I've been to. You're going to get whacked or You're going to get smoked. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to yeah. get smoked. And so that's why I would consider myself patriotic because I've been on the other side. You've seen you know, the alternative. And, and, and when you've been on the other side, that changes your perspective. Yeah. And that's why what I try, everything that I try to do now is I understand we have problems, but I want to be I want to be an agent of change because I know that there is so much potential within this country where we can be that great, that absolute great nation, not just for one group, but for all groups of people. Right. Amen. So, Remy, what should I have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? Man, I think we kind of covered. <laughs> I think that was a perfect. I, I really yeah. do. Guys and gals listening yeah. to this. I'm telling you, I don't have a list of questions. I just sit here and, and I told Remy before the cameras went on, I said, it's two dudes sitting at a bar drinking and I'm just gonna ask you a lot of questions because I'm interested in your life. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the reasons was there's so many parallels to my life yeah, yeah. Um, that made me reflect. And obviously the times that we're in now today is, uh, Joan, what's today? The, the first. First. Yeah. Uh, first, you know, what, a week ago now, George Floyd, yeah. passed away and so the timing was just right you were speaking out yeah on social media and I wanted you to come out here and uh, we just went full circle from where we started to to have you sit here at the end of this episode mm -hmm. and say look man I wasn't patriotic when I went into the into mm -hmm. the military um, I went because I wanted to get away from what was surely going to be yeah. death probably a life of either death or imprisonment yeah. or just always looking over your shoulder yeah yeah. None of those three are interested to me, interesting to me, Not like, at all. right? Um, and in the process of going and experiencing the world, you're like, I would rather be in the United States than any other country I've been to. Any other place. That's, that's Any powerful. other place. Well, Remy, brother, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate Thank you so you. much for coming yes, out sir. to Chino Hills yes, and uh, braving the vicious COVID virus. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> uh, guys and gals, here's what we're gonna do. Um, I got two copies here of Transformed, uh, one for me in my bookshelf and one for one of you guys. And I want you to do me a favor and uh, take a screenshot, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to any of the uh, podcast platforms, take a screenshot and I want you to tag me and Remy um, as this episode comes out here in the next few days. And um, about three days in, I'm gonna take all the names, all of you who have tagged me, I'm gonna pick one of you, and I'm gonna send you a signed copy of Transformed, Remy's book here in the mail. So I uh, appreciate y'all listening, yes, watching. Remy, thank you for your time and your uh, service, my friend. Us. Yes, sir. All right, yes, sir. and uh, as always, uh, be good to each other, mm -hmm. and uh, listen, give us a five-star review, share this episode, don't bust my balls about being political <laughs> and racial and all that shit. It's all a part of, I've got a platform, I'm going to speak my voice, exactly. and if th it doesn't sit well with you, feel free to unsubscribe, unfollow, and block me, yep. and I'll see you guys later.